Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5, we continue in our study in the Gospel of Mark, and I don't know about you, but I have been really enjoying reading through Mark. So many wonderful things here. Today I want to speak to you out of Mark chapter 5, verses 21 and following, and I want to talk on the pain of postponement. The pain of postponement. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. As always, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one out of the seat in front of you, and it'll be the same version I'm reading from. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and she had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and and, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping, and they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Well, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful, Lord, for the Gospels. And as we read these amazing events that took place in the life of our Savior, we cannot help but marvel. And I pray this morning you'd help it to be real to us, help us to see it, help us to travel back in our mind's eye to that day and and be able to visualize some of these things. What an amazing event. And yet, Lord, I pray also we'd be able to apply some truth to our life today as well. So speak to us. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, that you'd help me today to preach as I ought to. Uh, protect me from saying anything I ought not to. Forgive me for anything that would, that would stand in the way of, of being your, uh, your instrument today. Uh, and Lord, help me, embolden me to say anything I should say. So just bless this time and speak to hearts. I pray, Lord, if there are those here today without Christ that don't know for certain they're on their way to heaven, I pray that they would come to that understanding today and be saved. And I pray for Christians especially Christians today, to whom this passage is more directed, I think, 
And I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, comfort and encourage. And if anybody really needs the word of encouragement that's herein, I pray they would receive it today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our last couple of studies, we've seen some amazing things. We've seen Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then we saw him healing the maniac of Gadara. And then, after that, we saw him get back in the boat and return to Galilee. And that's where we pick up the narrative today. We pick it up just as he climbs out of the boat and is met by a crowd, a great multitude, as Mark describes it here in verse number 21. And then immediately, we're introduced to two people. One was Jairus, and one was an unnamed woman. Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue, according to verse 22, and so he's a man of prominence, a man of renown and prestige. The woman was identified only as a certain woman with a flow of blood, verse 25. And so she was just the opposite of Jairus, a woman of no reputation, most likely even a social outcast due to her condition. It would have made her ceremonially unclean, and so she was probably a religious outcast as well. The basic flow of the narrative is this. Let me, let me just uh, kind of step down through it. We see that Jesus arrives on the shore and is met by a throng. We see Jairus appear in verse 22 and beg Jesus to come and touch his little daughter who is dying. Verse 23, she was 12 years old. Luke adds the detail that she was his only daughter, 12 years old. So Jesus goes with him. But as they're making their way to Jairus' house, there is an interruption. And that's important. There is an interruption, unbeknownst to Jairus or the disciples or anyone else in the crowd for that matter. An unnamed woman had come to believe that if she could just touch Jesus' robe, she would be healed of her disease. And so she sneaks up in the crowd and touches just the hem of his garment. And she's immediately healed. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows what has happened, and he stops dead in his tracks, and he calls the woman out. He spends a few moments dealing with her. He explains that it was her faith that saved her, not some magical touch. But meanwhile, meanwhile, while that conversation is taking place, a messenger from Jairus' house arrives and tells him it's too late. His daughter is dead. Dead. And nothing further can be done, verse 35. Jesus hears that statement. But interestingly, Jesus completely ignores it and tells Jairus to keep on believing in verse number 37. They arrive at Jairus' house to find funeral preparations are well underway. Weeping and wailing is taking place. Jesus tosses the mourners out, takes the little girl by the hand, and tells her to get up. Verse number 41. She does, and all those in attendance are absolutely amazed. That's the story. And this account of Jairus pleading for Christ to heal his daughter, along with the subsequent interruption by this woman, this unnamed woman, it's, it's, it's described in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here in Mark chapter 5, Matthew chapter 9, and Luke chapter 8. And in all three of those accounts, we see the same basic flow. Jairus begging Jesus to save his daughter. Jesus setting out to do so. But then there is this interruption, this delay, this postponement during which it appears it appears that Jesus sets aside Jairus' problem and concentrates on somebody else's, concentrates on this woman's problem. There are some interesting similarities in the two different stories. Both deal with a daughter. Did you notice that? Jairus' daughter. 
and a woman whom Jesus called daughter. Both stories revolved around a 12-year-old period, a 12-year period. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, and the unnamed woman was 12 years sick. Jairus' daughter was dying after 12 years of life, and the woman was about to find life after 12 years of dying. Twelve years earlier, Jairus and his wife had welcomed their baby girl into the world. It was a joyous day, followed by 12 years of privilege and a good life. But also 12 years earlier, a woman had come down with a condition that would ruin her life. Her condition rendered her unclean to that society. She would be an outcast. She would not be allowed to worship. Cut off from society, cut off from the synagogue. Uh, If she was married before, it is likely that she was not married now. For such a problem would have likely ended her marriage. One was privileged, one was poor. One was healthy and now dying, and one had been slowly dying all along. Both were beyond human aid, and both were in need of something only the Savior could give. Warren Wiersbe said Jairus was about to lose a daughter who had given him 12 years of happiness, and the woman was about to lose an affliction that had brought her 12 years of sorrow. Interestingly, both of these people, both Jairus and the woman, had a... Uh, imperfect faith. They seemed to think that Jesus could touch and heal, that there was something perhaps magical in his touch. There was some superstitious element to that thinking. At least that's what I was able to determine from every commentary that I was able to consult on this. All seemed to say that basic thing. And in both cases, we see Jesus correcting their misunderstanding, indicating it was faith that saved, faith that healed, not some magical formula. Well, let me pull some, some thoughts out of this text, and, and they're in no particular order, just, just kind of do a little brain dump here. Let me pull a few thoughts out. I want you to notice, first of all, the prominence of Mark's signature word here. Anybody remember what Mark's signature word is? Immediately. Immediately. Thank you, Brother Carl. And you see that so, so, so clearly here. When the woman touched his robe, she was healed Immediately, verse 29, Jesus knew it immediately, verse number 30. And when Jesus told the little girl to get up from her deathbed, she was restored to life immediately, verse 42. And so I'm reminded, as, as, as we are reminded all throughout the Gospel of Mark, every time we see that word, we're reminded of how quickly Jesus responds when we come to him in faith. Notice another thing from this text. Notice verse number 30 and notice Jesus' question there. Who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? Why would Jesus ask such a question? Did he not know? Was he not omniscient? Did he not know? Why would he ask such a question? Well, I would submit that Jesus did not ask the question because he didn't know. He asked it so that the woman would step forward and testify as to what had happened to her. He asked it so Jairus would hear the answer. He asked it so those standing around would hear the answer. He asked it so the woman would hear herself saying the answer. It's an interesting example of how when the Lord does something in our lives, we ought to testify to that. We ought to let people know about that. The psalmist said in, uh, where's it at here, Psalm 107 and verse number 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And so he said, who touched my clothes? So that she would step forth and so that others would see what good thing had happened in her life. And that's one of the reasons we have altar calls 
here. We don't just have altar calls so that folks will come and be saved, although that's a good thing. We don't just have altar calls so people can come and pray and ask for things. Sometimes folks ought to just come and say, look what God has done for me. I want to tell my church about what God has done for me. Think about this. One man said, imagine the woman, her heart throbbing with joy and fear, her eyes tearing with emotion. Christ was calling her to stand before the throng, but not for his sake. It was for her and for Jairus and for some within the crowd and for us. The woman's faith was at its core an ignorant faith. She sought a cure that was essentially magic secured, touching the edge of his robe. She had no idea that Jesus would know anything about what she did. Her faith was uninformed, presumptuous, and superstitious, but it was real. And Christ honored her imperfect faith. He touched my clothes. Of course, the disciples had a question of their own when they heard that question, didn't they? They they looked at him and they said, wait a minute, the crowd is thronging you and you wonder who touched you? Verse number 37. It's a good question. How did Jesus know? How did he know the difference between the many hands that were reaching out from the crowd and brushing against him and the hands of this one person who was trying to hide the fact she touched him at all? How did he know? He didn't answer them. And Scripture doesn't tell us, but we know that he knew. Clearly he knew. He could tell the difference between the casual contact of the crowds and the believing touch of this one woman. And it reminds me that there is a difference between believing faith and just casual faith. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. One man said Christ was jostled by the multitude. People were shoving and pushing him as he attempted to go to Jairus' home, but he felt the touch of faith. As Augustine said, flesh presses, faith touches. And then a sea of a million hands, Christ will see the one that is raised in faith. Amen. Notice also that when the woman came forward and confessed what had happened, he called her daughter. Did you notice that? It's significant because it's the only place in the New Testament where we see Jesus calling someone daughter. The only time it's used. The only recorded use. And I believe the Holy Spirit might have recorded it there for a couple of reasons. I think he might have recorded it there because it ties the story of Jairus' daughter in here. It's a nice little tie-in between those two. But I think also because it describes the new relationship that resulted from her faith. Daughter. I was once an outcast stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth, but I've been adopted. My name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown. I'm a child of the king, a child of the king. With Jesus, my Savior, I'm a child of the king. We who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord have been saved, and we are sons and we are daughters. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, children of God in Christ, this woman was no longer an outcast. She was no longer a stranger. She was no longer an alien in her own land and among her own family and among her own friends. She was now a member of the family of God. Daughter. Daughter of the king. Well, notice another thing. Notice the terrible news that followed. Here's this glorious moment where she is healed and rejoicing. And then we see men coming from Jairus' home saying, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Verse 34. Your daughter is dead. I, I cannot imagine worse words that he could have heard at that time. I will personally never forget the time I sat in a little room with the doctor and heard him say, She will not recover. 
Your daughter is dead. Seconds before Jairus had heard Jesus say, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And that daughter was healed, and his daughter was dead. How the words must have hung in the air. I can't imagine that. Jairus must have very nearly collapsed under the weight of those words. You see, those messengers had concluded that the situation was not only hopeless, but it was past remedy. But notice Jesus' words in verse number 36. Notice how he reacted. He heard that, but then he disregarded it completely. He ignored what they said. The net Bible translation brings out that nuance of the text when it says that he paid no attention to what they said. And again, it's another wonderful reminder that news that might devastate us, news that might destroy us, doesn't phase the Savior at all. And the unfazed Savior turned to Jairus and said, Do not be afraid, only believe. Verse 36. We ought to underline that sentence in our Bibles. Every one of us ought to have that underlined. Do not be afraid, only believe. A clearer translation might be, uh, Stop fearing, keep believing. Jesus was saying to Jairus, You had enough faith to come to me in the first place. You just watched. Your faith was bolstered when you saw this woman healed of her condition. Don't stop believing now. That's what he was saying. Finally, I want you to notice the way in which the daughter was raised to life. Jairus had asked Jesus to come and lay hands on her that she might live, verse 23. He, like this woman with the flow of blood, thought there was something magical in Jesus' touch. And he sought the touch of the healer and the magic in that touch. Jesus did touch the girl. He took her by the hand. But that's not how he restored her to life. He restored her to life with a word. Verse number 41, little girl, I say to you, Arise, I say to you. Emphasis on the word I. I say to you. Jesus has authority over death. And he was proclaiming that right there. Personal authority over death. I say to you, get up. An absolute direct command. Get up. And then we see Mark's favorite word. Immediately the girl arose and walked. And what was the response of all those who were around her? Well, they were were thunderstruck. To say the least, they were overcome with great amazement at what they had seen. Verse number 42. So now that we've seen what happened there, I want to make one particular application from this. There's all kinds of applications that we might make from this, but I want to make one particular application this morning, which helps me, and I hope it helps you as well. I think I've told you this story before, but when I was 16 years old, I wanted a 1966 Mustang in the worst possible way. I had to have a 66 Mustang. And there was a day that my mom and I were driving home from someplace. I don't remember if I was driving or she was driving at that particular point. We were in the car together and we're driving home. I can still tell you right where this was. I can still point you to the exact house. Uh, There sitting in front of the house was a Mustang. It was not a 66. I had studied this enough to know that it was not a 66. It was a 67, but it was close enough. And so I said, oh, Mom, we got to pull in there. And so we pulled in there, and she listened as I talked to this woman. And we started it up and all that kind of stuff. And I asked the owner for her selling price, and to my amazement, she said, $50. $50 was a ridiculous price, even in the dark ages when I was 16 years old. That, that, that was just insane. And I looked at my mother. I'm sure my eyes were as big as saucers. And I asked her if she would loan me the 50 bucks, because I had the 50 bucks. I just didn't have it with me. I said, I'll pay you back. I have it. Come on, give me the 50 bucks. Well, my mom was wise, and she said, 
you know, you don't know a lot about cars, and I don't know anything about cars. She said, let's, let's wait till your dad gets home, and we'll let your dad look at the car, and he can make a decision. And, of course, I wailed, it won't be here by that time. We can't wait. We'll never get another out. You know, all that kind of stuff just went on and on and on. However, she insisted. She gave me one of those looks that said the discussion is over, and we got in the car and we drove home. And, of course, I immediately called my father, and I told him you know, what was going on. He needed to stop on the way home. And, of course, it was a million years later that he finally got home. And uh, I waited and waited and waited until I saw him coming around the curve on the way to the house. And by the time he had got out of the car, I was standing right beside the car door waiting for news. And he got out, and he looked at me with a sad look. And he said, I'm sorry, son. Somebody bought the car before I got there. You know, I'm not sure that I've ever totally gotten over that devastation. (laughs) And you know, to add insult to injury on all of that, Dad said, and by the way, they sold it to somebody for $40. $40. Sometimes we experience delays in our lives, don't we? Times when God seems to block our path, times which can be very frustrating and which in and, and times in which we find it very difficult to understand. That's what Jairus experienced here, a delay in, 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 in God working in his life. I heard a preacher one time say that God orders a man's stops as well as his steps, and I think that's exactly what Jairus was experiencing here. There are many lessons we could pull out of this text, but that's the one I want us to think about this morning. Jesus is in control of even the delays of our life. If there's one lesson we pull out of this text, one lesson that speaks to me, it's that one. Jesus is in control of even the delays of our lives. So three quick points today and we'll be done. First of all, I want you to notice that God's delays often come at seemingly crucial moments. God's delays often come at seemingly crucial moments. Jairus' need was desperate. I can't imagine a more desperate need than what Jairus was going through. Jesus was his last hope, and every minute, every second, no doubt seemed crucial at this particular moment. There's other examples we can find in Scripture of delays that took place. I mean, David comes to my mind. David coming to the end of his life and wanting to accomplish just one more thing that was yet unaccomplished in his life, and that was the building of the temple for his God. And yet God said, no, ain't going to happen, David. You're not going to do that. Your son's going to do that. There's going to be a delay. And I think all of us can, can, can relate to that. Has there been a time in your life that illustrates that? Has there been a time when God seemed to delay dealing with you at some crucial moment, when it, when it seemed hopeless, when you couldn't figure out what in the world God was doing, when you wondered why it was taking so long for him to respond, when your prayers seemed to bounce off the ceiling as if they were getting nowhere. Have you ever wondered whether he was even listening? Delays. If such has been your experience, then I'm sure you would agree with Jairus. I think you would probably testify the same thing, that those delays usually seem, at least they feel like they're coming at some crucial moment, times when you really needed God to act right now. And he didn't. There was a delay. God's delays often come at seemingly crucial moments. The second thought is this, God's delays always have a good reason. They always have a good reason. I, I think as children of God, we forget so often that God sees the whole picture. We don't. When he says no to us, when he makes us wait, he probably, he always knows what he was doing. 
And this was true in Jairus' case. Maybe Jairus didn't see it, but it was true. Jesus was concerned about Jairus. Jesus knew that he was going to go, and he was going to heal this daughter, and he was going to raise her to life, but he was also concerned with more than just Jairus. He was just as concerned for that anonymous woman as he was her. Often we, like Jairus, have to stand aside as the Lord deals with someone else, and always we must remember that he has a good reason for the delays that he puts us through. I think I've told you this story too, but it's another one from my not very pretty teenage years. You guys should listen to me and be instructed from these kinds of things. My teenage years were not pretty. I tortured my parents. I had a smart mouth. I had an attitude. I know you can't believe that now, but it's true. I knew, and they didn't. It was just as simple as that. And I made sure that they knew that at every turn. One Christmas, this time of year, I had done a little Christmas shopping and I wanted to hide a gift. And I came strolling through the house carrying a stepladder. And my mother accosted me and said, what are you doing with that stepladder? I said, I'm going to hide some gifts in the attic. And she said, no, you're not. Put the stepladder away. I said, what? I, I can, I'm perfectly capable of getting in the attic and putting something up there. I immediately concluded that she thought I was not, that I would fall through and uh, that I couldn't handle a ladder. I, you know, every kind of a possible scenario I could think of. And so I argued back and forth, but she gave me that look again, which said basically, put the ladder away. So I did. I obeyed. I had a smart mouth, but I wasn't totally stupid. And I did obey her, but for the rest of the time leading up to Christmas, I mentioned that every chance I could. I smarted off about that every chance I could. I can't believe you don't trust me with a ladder. I can't believe that I, you think I can't, you know, all that kind of stuff that teenagers do. You guys would never do that, would you? Would you ever do that? No. Christmas morning came around, and we all opened our presents. And uh, we finished supposedly opening our presents, and we're looking around at all the wrappings and all this. It looked like we were done when my mother looked at me, and she said, Now, Billy, why don't you go get that ladder and climb up in the attic? And see what's up there. You see, God's delays always have a reason. What appeared to be a disastrous delay in the healing of the woman actually assured the restoration of Jairus' daughter. He knew exactly what he was doing in both cases. It was providentially ordered to test and strengthen Jairus' faith. One last thought. So we've seen that God's delays often come at seemingly crucial moments. God's delays always have a good reason. And finally, God's delays do not affect God's control. The men who brought the terrible news to Jairus, they thought it was too late. They thought the control over the situation was lost. And how often we're like them. How often we judge Christ's power by our standards. But, but, but Jesus is never out of control. And that's why he could look at Jairus right here and say, be not afraid, only believe. Don't stop believing, Jairus, just because you think this an impossible situation, because nothing is impossible for Jesus. Don't stop believing, Jairus, just because others don't believe. Ignore them, just as I am ignoring them. Be not afraid, only believe. So many examples that we can find in Scripture, of Christ's power over the impossible. We have two right here in these 22 short verses here in the Gospel of Mark. Just on the other side of the sea, he had given another demonstration in healing the maniac of Gadara. And, and just prior to that, he had, uh, he had his absolute Godhead authority over everything had been demonstrated when he calmed the storm and stilled the sea. 
So many more demonstrations were yet to come. One day in the future, he would walk up. We talked about this in Sunday school. He would walk up to the tomb containing the four days old, embalmed and stinking dead Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth. And the crowd would watch in amazement as Lazarus did just that. God is in control, even when we don't see it. God is in control, even when things seem impossible. God is in control. Even when our faith is imperfect, God is in control. Even when our faith has been so tested and tried that it's nearly ready to buckle. And God is in control, even when he allows or brings delays into our lives. God's delays do not affect God's control. So is there a solution for you and for me when the pain of postponement becomes acute, when we are struggling under a seeming delay? I think Jesus gives it in our text. We've seen it. We've said it. As soon as Jesus heard the words that, we, that were spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. A literal translation of that is be not afraid. Go on believing. Don't stop believing. Warren Wiersbe paraphrases Jesus' words as, quote, you had a certain amount of faith when you came to me. Your faith was helped when you saw what I did for that woman. Don't quit. Keep on believing. So don't quit, brother, and don't quit, sister. Your faith has got you this far. You have seen God work in the lives of others along the way, so don't stop believing now. It was faith that saved the woman both physically and spiritually. It was faith that brought Jairus' daughter back from the grave, and it is faith that enables all of us to make it through the seeming delays in our lives. Don't quit. Keep on believing. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. 